On October 20, 1947, a congressional committee began hearings on un-American activities in the movie industry. People with unpopular political opinions were accused of subversion and lost their jobs. They were blacklisted. From Hollywood, the blacklist spread to businesses and universities, institutions and communities across the country. Thousands became the targets of denunciations, suspicion, and fear. This is the story of one man and his family and their life under the blacklist for 15 years. Blacklisted, episode four, rainy season. Late every spring, by clockwork, the rains came to Mexico, starting at midday and pouring for hours. From the patio of our home in Cuernavaca, you could hear the water pounding on the flagstones and the roof and drenching the dark undergrowth of the barranca, a deep ravine that bordered us on three sides. In the four years we'd lived here, with my mother Barbara, my Aunt Janet, and my father Gordon, my older brother Jim and I had explored the barranca often, going as far into it as we dared, down a long abandoned aqueduct, through the canyons and over the woods and cliffs on either side. But in the rainy season, the barranca came to us, overgrowing the stone wall into our garden and lawn, sending its mice and scorpions foraging for food and shelter in our kitchens, closets, and drawers. One year, a storm brought a swarm of red ants pouring like lava down our bedroom walls. It took us half an hour to fight them off and stop up the hole with cement. The following year, the Barranca sent us Chula, a scrawny, frightened yellow stray. Once in the underbrush, she let us watch her give birth to puppies. As soon as they could walk, she taught them to run from everyone but us. They were the only Mexicans, we used to joke, who trusted us. Dear Lucy, viva and ole from Mexico. I stopped at the post office to see what was in our letterbox this morning besides the family of wrens which have been nesting there. Buenos dias. Buenos dias, patron. For my father, who'd escaped Hollywood and a blacklist in 1950, Mexico had been a refuge from the Red Scare. And after 20 years as a screenwriter for everyone from Roy Rogers to Tarzan, a chance to write something from the heart a novel about the Cold War called A Long Way From Home, about a young Mexican-American exile named Gilberto fleeing the draft in the United States. But publishers were rejecting it as too political, and my father was out of cash. My next artistic success will have me on the verge of beggary. Send care packages, direct. God help us, and if he can't, let him leave us strictly alone. Vast affection, con de Marelos. A lot of people behind the Iron Curtain 
are wondering whether we can take it if we're attacked. They're carefully measuring our courage, our capacity to fight, our capacity for sacrifice. In the nearly four years since we'd been gone, movies they had become more anti-communist than ever. The question is, have Americans got the guts? Have you got the guts? And a private industry of pressure groups had developed to keep them that way by distributing blacklists of anyone proved or thought to be a red. Another edition of Spotlight. Band leader Artie Shaw has affiliated himself plenty with known commies. Radio station WOLF is still using his records. How come? Jose Ferrer. Maybe we shouldn't see his new motion picture. And how come the big Life magazine spread? Judy Holiday. Ditto regarding her new picture. Jack Guilford struck out. The Weavers. Benito. Gordon Kahn. Fled to Mexico and done for good, we hope. Though the movies were out, there was still a chance he could make a living as a writer, if he were careful. February 8, 1955. Worked on short story, Las Mañanitas. March 31, started notes on One on the Chin. Short article on beards. May 7, tried to get to revision of my play Tin Wedding. House full of people. Couldn't work. Through the winter and spring, he wrote nonstop, piling up as many articles, plays, and short stories as he could, toiling, as he called it, at the loneliest pursuit in the world. The last character he created was his most important, and the one on whom the success of the venture would depend, a fictitious writer without politics or a past who would claim to be the author of all this work. May 1, 1955 decided on Hugh G. Foster. A name out of the blue, he told me years later, chosen so as not to resemble his real name in the least. May 2, 1955. Dear Lou. He wrote a friend in New Hampshire, asking him to let him use his business as Hugh G. Foster's mailing address. I, or circumstances, or a combination of both, have jockeyed the Kahn family somewhere north of the eight ball. A rugged location, indeed. It's hard to tell at this point whether the horizon looks bright or not. In fact, I haven't looked away from my typewriter long enough to make an observation. Here is the situation. One of my uncles, then visiting us in Mexico, would take the manuscripts to an agent in New York. Someday he may find out who U.G. Foster actually is, but until then, the name of Khan is poison in the editorial offices of magazines who go by the same blacklist that is in operation at radio stations. It is a shabby kettle of Barracuda, Lou, and I apologize for it. Meanwhile, or mientras, as we say here, I send you my immense thanks in advance and the affectionate regards of all of us to you and the family. As you can see, viejo, it is operating pretty much against gravity. Como siempre. My father now faced another climb as steep as the recovery of his career, the recovery of his cash. Senor Zamudio, a businessman who'd been his protector, had borrowed all his savings and was refusing to pay him back. My father had begun legal action against Mr. Zamudio 
and Zamudio, using the political connections he'd always boasted of, had retaliated by having my father's files and papers that permitted him to live in Mexico misplaced in the federal office of Gobernación. Without those documents, my father could be kicked out of Mexico and into the hands of the House and American Activities Committee and the FBI. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? When my father fled the United States in 1950 for Mexico, the penalty for refusing to tell the committee if you belong to the Communist Party had been up to a year in federal prison for contempt of Congress. In the present climate, it could be worse. Luckily, my father's friend in Mexico City, Ignacio, a doctor with connections as impressive as Amudio's, had made my father's residency and immigration papers reappear. But then, Zamudio threw another curve. Bueno? My father's own attorney was refusing to give him Zamudio's IOUs, and without them, my father had no case. It's blackmail, Ignacio. We can't proceed without those IOUs. Even if you had them, what good would they do? What Zamudio did was fraud. Then you must hire a detective to prove it. He will charge you 20,000 pesos. Do you have this money? No. Supposing Zamudio is condemned to jail for fraud, he gets out on bail the next day. Do you get back any money? No. No one had given me the details, but I knew that things were bad. Mother always hid our Christmas gifts under the bed. That year, I'd asked for a big fort with a drawbridge, and Jim was hoping for a large album for his growing stamp collection. There was nothing anywhere near that big for either of us. All we could find in their closet was a small wheel of the bitter chocolate my father loved to nibble, some new shirts, and the hiding place for an automatic pistol. Three January, 1955. Dear D, I'm down to less than 150 pesos and what is in the kids' piggy banks. In the past, my father had lent money to blacklisted victims of the House and American Activities Committee like himself. One of them had borrowed a few thousand to return to the States, where he was working, making a good living writing under other names. Getting that loan repaid was proving difficult, too. The point is that it's a desperate, day-by-day -day situation. If need be, I can get the family to New England where they can live with Barbara's father. I can hole up somewhere in Mexico City and battle it out alone, both at work and to be on hand when legal action is started against the pious Aztec who embezzled my dough. But I haven't got enough to turn the engine of my heap over for long enough to keep the battery alive. That May, my parents celebrated their 24th wedding anniversary with a few friends still left in Mexico. Dear Barbara and Gordon, in spite of all you had to go through in life, you still have a great future. I would give everything I have to be as young as you are and have my health as I had then. Mother's father had written from New Hampshire with greetings and a check. From now, all griefs 
all troubles shall change into happiness, and may heaven give you many, many years of sunshine days. It had never been easy for my father to accept grandfather's help. During the Depression, when my father and mother had just started out and my father was out of work, grandfather had offered to take him into his furniture business in New Hampshire. My father had explained to mother why that was something he could never do. Dearest, what would you think of me if I suddenly admitted my lack of ability to make a living at writing? We owe it to our people to give them some cause for a little pride in us. And I don't see how your father and mother or mine can take any great pride in me if I threw in the sponge and said I can't support my wife in my profession. It is possible that I may have made a serious error pitting myself against a set of circumstances which I am not equipped to fight successfully. But there is one thing I don't want to do, and that is admit that I am licked. Do you think I am? Despite all that's happened, I don't consider myself an incompetent. Not by a long shot. My father's faith in his ability to write his way out of a tight spot hadn't changed in 20 years, but his health had. Half the trips he now took to Mexico City were to a cardiologist. The previous autumn, he'd suffered a heart attack. By a miracle, he'd walked away and kept it a secret from the family. But what if it happened again? April 12, 1954. Heart medication causes great depression all day. Only a few pages done. Felt a little better later. Took the boys out to play downtown in the Zocalo. I had a secret too. It was the beginning of May. In less than two weeks, my father would celebrate his 52nd birthday and my brother Jim his 12th. And I was planning to surprise them with some money from the national lottery. I'd gotten close to a few of the street kids who sold lottery tickets to the customers at the outdoor cafes downtown. I knew I'd never be anything more to these kids than a gringo, but I figured out how that could be an advantage. Gringos never bought lottery tickets. They suspected the whole thing was a scam and scared the Mexican kids off. Beat it, you little bastards. Dressed in torn pants, I would pose as an abandoned gringo child selling tickets to survive. The Mexican kids and I would split the proceeds later behind the palace of Hernan Cortes, the conqueror of Mexico. The kids gave me a sheaf of 20 tickets, and in half an hour, I sold them all. When I got back to settle up with them, they knocked me down, grabbed the 20 pesos in my hand, and ran away. Just as I expected. I kept another 15 in my shoe, enough to buy Jim some stamps and Gordon some bitter chocolate. The little kid from Los Angeles, who had arrived here in Cuernavaca nearly five years before without a word of Spanish and scared of the street, seemed far away. Even my English was getting rusty. Some of the gringos I'd sold lottery tickets to had laughed when I spoke. 
I was glad I'd overcharged them. despite children's being home. Unable to write letters, Ray, problem with gobernación. That evening, my father learned his application for Mexican citizenship had been delayed. Without it, he couldn't legally earn a penny of the money he needed for living expenses and legal fees. We'll see attorney next Wednesday p.m. Listened to radio and went to bed at 11 p.m. Suffered very painful heart congestion. Got to dig and root out the communists and the crooks and those who are bad for America. That night at 1.30 in the morning, restless and unable to sleep, my father got out of bed to go back to work ah! and stepped on a scorpion. The rainy season had returned. It was the worst we'd seen. Violent storms tore the air, flattened the undergrowth of the barranca, and grew stronger every day. In Cuernavaca, the stream in front of our house swelled into a raging river, covering the lawn with broken tree limbs and leeches. A day later, our roof collapsed. Dearest Talim, Mexico is trying to wash us away. The clothes in the closet are flooded and ruined. What's left is strewn all over the house. The lights are out, the food is spoiled, the plumbing is shot, the toilets are overflowing, and in the morning, bugs pour from our shoes. There must be a word to describe it, but I don't know what it is, beyond the fact that I am a wreck. And no one talks to anyone else. When we first got here, I used to say you would just, after five years, I'm wondering if you ever do. I'm only slightly more terrified of the things that are happening back home. How long, oh Lord, how long? Much love to you and all the family. Leave an empty chair at your table for this little outcast, will you? Where this homeless spirit can hover, bark. and regulations of their own. In California, legislation is pending to deny licenses to anyone who refuses to cooperate with a congressional committee investigating communism. It doesn't matter whether they're contractors, teachers, or beauticians, said a state legislator. If they don't support our system, it shouldn't support them. Through it all, my father kept pushing his case against Zamudio, and Zamudio kept pushing back. The Mexican Department of State informed my father he'd have to reapply for Mexican citizenship from scratch, a cost he could neither cover nor afford not to. Almost every day, from the veranda, I'd watch my father's car grinding up the steep dirt road in front of our house, 
shifting into lower gear, spinning through mud and stones, till the wheels bit into the concrete and he'd drive off, a cigarette clenched in his teeth, on one more fruitless 40-mile trip to see lawyers and officials in Mexico City. Gordon, listen to me. The money is gone. As a devoted friend and worker in mental health, I urge you to put this whole business completely out of your mind as a horrible experience. Reality must be faced. There is no money there. There will never be any money. And for you to spend thousands, even if you had them, to put Zamudio in jail for 24 hours is absurd. Serious mistakes were made at the beginning of this deal, but they cannot be rectified now. Think of your family. Think of your health. No matter how bitter the truth may be, I must take the bull by the horns. You cannot go on! That June, in the heaviest rain of the month, my father blew a tire on his way home from Mexico City and lost control. Somehow, he walked away without a scratch. He must have taken it as a sign. He'd reached the end of the road. Win or lose, it was time to go back to the States. June 19, 1955. Begin cleaning out desk. Mobs of people here. Barbara busy with her sales. Buyer will take icebox for 2,000 pesos. Apellidos y nombres. Anthony, baby, can be brought. Edad? Yes. Estado civil. Menor. Nacionalidad por nacimiento. Norteamericano. Nacionalidad actual. Norteamericano. There was still a lot of paperwork to go through, and we'd have to sell almost everything we had. But I was finding my excitement hard to conceal. I was going home. Cuernavaca, Morelos, July 15, 1955. Dear Lou, your willingness to narrate the grim scroll of my general failure to Barbara's father is deeply appreciated. It is not news of the best kind for a man to be told that his wretched son-in-law was throwing wife, sister-in-law, two grandsons, and their dog back into his tender care. Maybe he's trembling, too, about the Mexican invasion. If I were in a position to command it, I would insist on a separate place for us and a completely independent existence. But possessing no furniture and scarcely the traditional pot to cook in gives me no choice. It's all a great mess, and I am conducting my activity as if the only source of income I will have for the future is from my writing. I have produced 2,000 pages of manuscript as Hugh G. Foster, which, if it isn't transmuted to gold during my lifetime, will form part of my shabby estate and perhaps appear as the posthumous works of, uh, well, who knows what name. If I were a more cheerful philosopher, I'd console myself with the fact that 40% of the disaster was due to the collapse of the peso, but 
The rest of it is entirely my fault for being the kind of man I am. I might say that one thing has not only retained its true value in these crises, but has increased in my estimation. Barbara's loyalty. And that makes up for an incalculable number of things. With, well, I might say the world crumbling, it is wonderful to see the family ties growing firmer. Between chapters, a man gets a lot of time to think about these things. Hasta la vista, Gordon. The next day at recess, Gordon came to pick me up at school and take me to my flight to the States. To save money, only my Aunt Janet and I would return by plane. The rest of the family would crowd into the family car and drive north. The class stood outside to wave goodbye. Pablo, my best friend. Rudy, who told the best stories in the world. Diana, whom I'd never had the courage to tell I loved. And all of whom I'd probably never see again. I was walking backwards, waving goodbye, trying to think of one last thing to say when I got the idea of tripping on a rock and falling over. It was something I'd learned from my father. Leave him laughing. Come on, son, let's go. Amy, stay in, sit, sit Don't down. Strain. Gordon, please. Jim, help your father, now. Two weeks later, on August 1st, on four retreaded tires. Cuanavaca, Morelos, The rest of the family squeezed into the car and, with fenders flapping, took off on the 3,000-mile journey from Cuernavaca to my grandfather's house in Manchester, New Hampshire. There was one consolation. New Hampshire was the last place on earth anyone would think to look for a blacklisted Hollywood screenwriter. Besides, by then, the committee was hunting for communists in areas far removed from show business and will probably have little interest in a man in the middle of nowhere trying to write his way out of a hole. What disturbed me most was that we had to leave Chula behind. The owners of the house had vowed not to chase her away and to feed her when she came to the door. But I knew how little the promises we'd gotten here were worth. She just had a new litter of puppies. I hope she hadn't forgotten her way back to the Barranca. Office of the Director, FBI. A former associate close to Khan suggests Khan and his family will soon leave Mexico for parts unknown. A review of this file reflects subject as a brother, Joseph Victor Kahn, Bureau File 100-40074, living at Poughkeepsie, New York. In the event, a specific address is determined for the subject in the United States. It is requested that the Mexico City office be advised at once. Blacklisted, Episode 4, Rainy Season, was performed by Ron Liebman as Gordon Kahn, Stockard Channing as Barbara Kahn, 
Carol O'Connor as J. Edgar Hoover, and Tony Khan as the narrator. The cast also featured Julie Harris, Eli Wallach, Jerry Stiller, Julie Halston, Ralph Howard, Andy Bowers, Andrew Kahn, Santiago Garfias, Jonathan Turok. Your announcer is Will Lyman. Blacklisted was produced, written, and directed by Tony Khan. Co-producer for Blacklisted is Harriet Risen. Associate producers are Sonny Dufo, Spencer Weisbroth, and Eileen Silverstone. Chief engineer is Kevin McLaughlin. Original music was composed and performed by Bill Bookheim. Major funding for this program came from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, with additional support from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Massachusetts Foundation for the Humanities, and the Threshold Foundation, and with production help from KCRW Santa Monica and WBUR Boston. Blacklisted is a production of Tony Khan Productions, which is solely responsible for its content. This podcast of Blacklisted is sponsored by Audible.com, where you can download over 40,000 audiobooks, magazines, radio shows, and more. To download a free audiobook today, go to Audible.com.